Well, good evening once again. We are continuing our series through the prophet Elijah's ministry. Today we will be picking up in 1 Kings 18, verse 20. And we will read verses 20 through 40. Again, that's 1 Kings 18, verses 20 through 40. Pay careful attention, for this is the word of God. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. That noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after the custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time the offering of the oblation, and there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the Lord, the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. 
and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Well, thus ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his help. Blessed Lord, who has caused Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear, read, learn, and inwardly digest them, that through the comfort of your Holy Word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, 20 years old. Can you imagine what you were doing when you were 20 years old? Well, at this age, most people are living in dorms, they're eating cafeteria food, and they're trying not to fail college algebra. When I was 20 years old, I was standing at the altar waiting for my bride to walk down the aisle. Now, I know what many of you are thinking. You got married when you were 20? That's way too young. Well, you would not be completely wrong. I was too young to drink and, or to pay for a hotel room, and yet I was making a covenant before God to love and serve Libby for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. Now, I don't think I understood the gravity of those vows, but I did know that I loved her and I wanted to be with her exclusively for the rest of my life. Well, only four and a half years have passed since we made those vows, But with each passing day, I understand a little bit more of the significance and weightiness of that commitment. For better or for worse, now has a new meaning as she has seen me on really good days and really bad days. And I can imagine in 50 years, if the Lord would be that kind as to give us that long together, we will understand the significance of these vows even more. Words like for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health might take on a new meaning. Well, in fact, it is not unpopular to see older couples renew their wedding vows. Oftentimes, these ceremonies can be even more of a tearjerker than the wedding itself because each vow is spoken with more weight and with more understanding. Well, our text today chronicles a dramatic covenant renewal service. It's a story of a wife who has been unfaithful. But it's also the story of a husband who powerfully fights for his bride and tenderly receives her back. It is the story of a wife who recommits herself to her husband, 
But more importantly, it's the story of a husband who has never wavered in his faithfulness and yet still reassures her of his ongoing commitment and love. It's the story of our God who will always remain faithful even when we are unfaithful. But before we see this beautiful covenant renewal service, we must first see how our God fought off his wife's suitors and won her back. To do so, we will approach our text in four parts. First, the contest in verses 20 through 24. Then the counterfeit, 25 through 29. The culprits, 30 through 35. And the conqueror, 36 through 40. Let us turn to the contest based on verses 20 through 24. Well, the first thing that we are told in verse 20 is that Ahab gathered all of the people of Israel and all of the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. This is in response to Elijah's command in verse 19. Now, Mount Carmel is not a random location that Elijah pulled out of his prophetic pants. In the Bible, God often reveals himself in important ways on mountains. Where did God meet Moses? Mount Sinai. Where did God provide a sacrifice for Abraham? And where did Solomon build the temple? Mount Moriah. The Bible even describes the Garden of Eden as a mountain in Ezekiel. And Hebrews calls the heavenly Jerusalem Mount Zion. Similarly, in the ancient world, mountains were thought to be the temple of gods. This was especially the case of Mount Carmel, for the lushness of the slopes and its prominent stature combined to give Mount Carmel sacred status. Its holy status goes as far back as the Egyptian pharaoh Thutmose III, who esteemed it to be holy. And apparently Israel also deemed it as a holy site because verse 30 tells us that there was a torn down altar to the Lord which meant that the Lord used to be worshipped there. Well, in Elijah's day, the Baal worshippers near Phoenicia agreed that it was indeed sacred. Jezebel and her house considered it a special Baal sanctuary. Well, for Elijah to challenge the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel was to challenge them on their own home turf. For all intents and purposes, the prophets of Baal should have had the advantage. Elijah drives this point home by noting that it is just one prophet against 450. And in verse 22, Elijah even lets the prophets of Baal have first pick of the bulls. Do you get the sense that Elijah is worried? Of course not, for he knows the God he serves. He's the God who fights for his bride, who will bring back his wayward people. He's the God who laughs in the faces of his enemies, who will bring every counterfeit God to nothing. He is not scared. He's giving them a head start. Well, now that everyone has gathered at Mount Carmel, Elijah then turns to the people. Verses 21 through 24 can be outlined as follows. Elijah speaks to the people, but the people do not answer. 
And then Elijah speaks to the people again, and this time the people do answer. Well, the first time Elijah speaks to the people, he rebukes them for limping between two different opinions, two different gods. The word limping has generated a lot of discussion amongst Hebrew scholars, but it likely means something like hobbling along on two uneven crutches. This would have been an especially unattractive image for ancient Israel because in ancient Israel, illness and injuries were often thought of as a sign of divine disfavor. It seems as though Israel had not utterly abandoned the worship of Yahweh. They just didn't worship him exclusively. Yahweh was worshipped along with Baal and Asherah and other pagan gods. Elijah's point is that to try and limp between the worship of God and the worship of Baal is to bring upon yourself God's disfavor. God will not share his glory with another. This led to Elijah's reasonable plea. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Well, the people do not respond to Elijah. They do not want to choose. Why can't it be both? Why can't both gods be worshipped? Well, Elijah then speaks again. And he proposes a contest. Both Elijah and the prophets of Baal would prepare a sacrifice to their God. And the God who answers by fire would be hailed as the true God. Now this was a brilliant move on Elijah's part. For remember, Baal was known to be the God of thunder. Not only was he uh, believed to give rain, but he also sent fire and thunder. But according to scripture, God alone is Lord over rain and fire, the heavens and earth, Israel and the Gentiles. By proposing this contest, Elijah was showing the contradictory claims of these religions. There is only one God of fire. Let's figure out today who it is. Well, the people agreed to Elijah's proposal. I mean, why wouldn't they? This contest would truly determine who is the real God. If neither Elijah's God nor Baal could send down fire, well, they had a tie. If both prophets produced fire, well, then the Israelites would be justified in their worship of both gods. It is only if the 450 fail and the one succeeds that they would be in the wrong. These were odds that Israel was willing to bet on. For surely if Elijah's God could put 450 prophets of Baal to shame, he must be the one true God. Well, now that we have heard the rules of the contest, it is time to look at round one, which I have termed the counterfeit. For it is here that Israel sees that Baal is a fraud, a figment of their imagination. Well, round one of the contest begins with Elijah repeating his instructions to the prophets of Baal. They were to prepare one bull as a sacrifice to their God without putting fire on it. Then they were to call upon Baal to send fire 
from heaven. Elijah only gives one new piece of information, namely, the prophets of Baal should go first. And they did precisely as Elijah commanded. Here we see who is really in charge. It is the Lord, through his prophet, who is calling the shots. Well, the 450 called to Baal from morning until noon. And their prayer is worth pausing over. They prayed, O Baal, answer us. In Hebrew, their prayer is just two words. Now, this should be contrasted with Elijah's prayer to the Lord in verses 36 through 37. For Elijah identifies God as the covenant Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. This is an appeal to God's covenant faithfulness. He is about to ask God to act for the sake of Abraham's children, and so he fronts his request with an appeal to the covenant-keeping God who chose this people. Well, he prays the same prayer as the prophet's, Answer me. But he couches his request in purpose clauses like, So that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. But the prophets of Baal could not appeal to Baal's gracious nature. They had no covenantal guarantees to depend on. They could not appeal to anything that might motivate Baal to act. Therefore, they prayed what they could, which wasn't much. Baal, answer. Brothers and sisters, take a moment to think of all of the prayers we have in Scripture. Think of Abraham and Moses' prayer of intercession. Think of the patriarch Jacob, who could not get through blessing his children without praying, I wait for your salvation. O Lord. Think of Miriam's song, sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. Or Mary's song, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Or consider that the biggest book in the Bible is a book of prayers and praises to our God. Or think of the Apostle Paul who couldn't get through a letter without erupting in prayer and praise. For oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Even strange apocalyptic books like Revelation can't hold back their praise. For worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The prophets of Baal could only utter two words. For their God was not worthy of praise. But Christian. If all of Christ's miracles were recorded, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged that the one true God of heaven and earth is infinitely worthy of praise. For nothing can compare to him. 
His glory and splendor make the Pacific Ocean look like a kiddie pool. His radiant purity and perfect goodness makes Mother Teresa look like a criminal on death row. His infinite knowledge and faultless wisdom makes Einstein's theoretic physics sound like a baby babbling. There is so much about God to revere, so many of his promises to relish. So, when you pray, do not pray like the prophets of Baal who just said, O God, answer me but pray to God as your covenant Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Pray to God as the one who has revealed himself to you and turned your heart back to him. Pray to God with confidence that he hears your cry. But notice the response to the 450 prayers in verse 26. But there was no voice, and no one answered them. Now pay attention to what it does not say. It does not say Baal did not speak, and Baal did not answer. Rather, the narrator says there was no voice, and no one answered. The author of Kings is making a claim about the non-existence of Baal. Baal did not exist. He was a counterfeit, an imaginary God, a cheap imitation of the one true God. They were praying to nothing. And that just makes what follows all the more ridiculous. The prophets began to limp around the altar. This is usually understood as a ceremonial dance that they would perform around the altar. And that word limp ties us back to Elijah's accusations that the people of Israel were limping between two opinions. This just further shows that the Israelites had not taken a neutral decision by worshiping both Yahweh and Baal. By tolerating idols, they were aligning themselves on Baal's side, on the limping prophet's side, which they now know. Baal, he does not exist. Well, at this point, Elijah begins to mock them. Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is amusing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. I hope you can hear the sarcasm in Elijah's voice. Clearly, you 450 prophets can speak louder than that. After all, you are praying to a god, right? I mean, I know that this is a sacred mountain and this is supposed to be his temple, but but you might need to speak louder than that. And then he gives reasons why they might need to speak louder. He says that they are musing or maybe relieving himself. Well, there's a lot of debate about what musing and relieving himself means, But I think that the most likely meaning is that these two words in Hebrew were meant to express one idea. For you grammar nerds out there, the technical uh, term for this construction is called the hendiades. Taken together, these words would mean something like, he may be defecating or urinating, 
This is dirty trash talk. He's saying, maybe Baal cannot hear you because he's having a bowel movement. He might be pooping so loud that he can't hear you. Speak louder. But Elijah doesn't stop there. He says, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Well, this is likely a reference to their mythology that said that Baal was temporarily imprisoned in the underworld uh, by the god Death. Again, hear the sarcasm in his words. Maybe he's in the outhouse, or maybe he's in the grave. He may not be able to hear you cry out louder. But it only gets crazier. The prophets actually take Elijah seriously. Now surely they heard the sarcasm in his voice, but Baal's preoccupation seemed to be the only logical explanation. Either Baal was busy or he did not exist, and they chose to believe the former. So they started crying out louder. They even began to cut themselves in hope that they would attract Baal's attention. Well, all of this nonsense went on until the offering of the oblation, which would have been sometime between 3 p.m. and twilight. Again, we are told there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Their cries were in vain. The counterfeit had been exposed. But it wasn't enough for Israel to know that Baal was a fake. For they could have easily blamed their sin on the false prophets who had led them astray, or on Ahab and Jezebel who had pressured them. But Israel was not just tricked by a bunch of con men. They knew the salvation of God. They had heard his statutes and precepts, and they knowingly chose to follow another. In the midst of this epic contest, God didn't just expose Baal, but God exposed Israel. He held up a mirror so that Israel could see the real culprits. Let us consider together verses 30 through 35, which I have entitled, The Culprits. Israel sees their sin. Well, sometime during the prophet's foolery, Elijah called Israel in verse 30, Come near to me. This was God's invitation to his wayward people. It was a call to join Elijah in worshiping God. And we are told all the people came near to him. This is a glorious foreshadowing of the repentance to come. Well, then Elijah repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. And the narrator proceeds to give uh, lots of details about the altar. And these are important details to our narrative. So the first thing we see is that Elijah took 12 stones. We are explicitly told that the number 12 was symbolic of the 12 tribes of Jacob, who was later renamed Israel. Now, we, want, we must remember that Elijah was living in the time of the divided kingdom, when the name Israel only represented ten tribes. However, Elijah did not just lay out ten stones, but twelve, connecting them back to their spiritual heritage as one family specially chosen by God. 
This also served as a picture that Israel, as they existed now in the divided kingdom, had fallen short of God's intentions for them. Well, Elijah took the stones, which again symbolize Israel, and he made an altar to the Lord. Well, Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests in a holy nation, with God's presence dwelling in their midst. Elijah's altar showed how far Israel had fallen from their holy calling. For the non-existent Baal was worshipped in their midst more than the God of Israel. Elijah then did everything according to the rules of the contest, except he added one strange addition. He made a trench around the altar. He then commanded the people to take four large jars of water and to pour it on the sacrifice. This was certainly a strange move on Elijah's part, but it tells us two important things. First, it heightens the impressiveness of Elijah's God. Kids, what do you pour on fire to put it out? Water, right. But here, Elijah was calling on God to send fire, and yet he puts water on it. The point is, no amount of water can stop the fire of God. Elijah was just simply giving them a very powerful object lesson. But the second thing that this shows us is another picture of Israel. Remember that the 12 stones symbolized the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, now Elijah commands them to take four jars of water and to pour it on the altar three times which uh, Karajin, our resident math whiz, will tell us amounts to 12 jars of water. The promised land was supposed to be a land of milk and honey, the land flowing with God's blessing, like the altar was overflowing with water. But the Israelites weren't living in paradise. They were living in a desert The Israelites are being confronted with their sin. Things are not the way that they should be, and it is their fault. It is because of their sin. They needn't look any further than their own reflection to find the real culprit. Well, the contest has been started. The counterfeit has been exposed. The culprit has been unveiled. Now it is time for the conqueror. Let's consider together verses 36 through 40. Well, Elijah has already made the preparations for his sacrifice, doing it in a way that cut deep into the hearts of Israel. Now it is time for Elijah to pray to his God for fire. Well, we have already compared Elijah's prayer with the prayer of the 450 prophets, but there is still one thing that we still need to notice, and it is this that this contest is not just a silly little contest for Elijah. It is not like two little kids arguing over whose dad is bigger. This contest is about the vindication of God and God's word. It is so that Israel would know that Yahweh is God and that everything Elijah has done has been according to God's word. 
It is so that God would be known to the people and that he would turn their hearts back to him. This is not a friendly rivalry. It is about the glory of God and the salvation of his people. Well, remember the response that the prophets of Baal got? But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Well, now, hear the response to Elijah's prayer. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. There was someone listening to Elijah. He was not away or on a journey. He was not asleep. The God who never slumbers answered by fire. We know that our God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And his wrath is great, for Malachi tells us, but who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. God's fire was so great, it utterly consumed the burnt offering, the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up all of the water that was in the trench. Now, God sucking up all of the water is a picture of God's judgment over Israel the last few years. For he had taken away all of Israel's water because of their idolatry. Well, now try to put yourself in the Israelites' shoes. You've been standing outside under the scorching sun all day, watching as your worldview is revealed to be a sham. The best and the most eloquent prophets were limping around, being mocked by one scrawny troublemaker. They cried, and they danced, and they cut themselves, and they prayed, and nothing. Then this one man, who seems to defy common sense, prays for five minutes, and a lightning bolt consumes his sacrifice. What would it be like to realize that you've been on the wrong side this whole time? That you have offended the God who sends down fire from heaven? That you are under his judgment? How would you respond? Well, they responded by falling on their faces and saying, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This is the only appropriate response to the holiness of God. They fall on their faces, too fearful to lift their eyes to the heavens. For even the sinless angels in the throne room of God covered their eyes before him. If angels can't look upon the glory of God, what hope do sinners have? Well, let me tell you what hope sinners have. Let me tell you what hope God's unfaithful bride has. Let me tell you what hope you have. This is the truly amazing part of the story. God doesn't send any more fire down. For he already sent down fire once and he did not miss his target. He wasn't aiming for them. 
As one pastor said, Yahweh's fire falls on the altar, not on the people. You see, Yahweh's judgment fell on a, on a substitute Israel in order to deliver Israel. Rather than consuming Israel with God's holy fire, another Israel has taken their place. A substitute Israel, Jesus Christ. Christian, take comfort in this. Jesus Christ is the true Israel who has perfectly obeyed in your stead. He alone is the sufficient sacrifice who has extinguished the wrath of God on your behalf. If you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, you are no longer under his divine judgment, but you are forever loved by him. In fact, in the last part of our text this evening, far from killing the Israelites, Elijah commissions them to seize all of the prophets of Baal. Then Elijah slaughters the prophets, destroying everyone who might try to lead Israel astray. This is the loving kindness of our God. He does not just forgive you and send you back to your filth. He renews his covenant with you and destroys any record of your wrongdoing. Perhaps you are here today and you've trusted in Jesus Christ for a long time now, but you consistently find yourself straying from the Lord you love. Every week you come through those doors and you sit in these pews aware of the sins you have committed even since last Sunday. The times you selfishly sought to be served by your spouse rather than to serve them. The times you were short with your children and dealt with them in unrighteous anger. Your lust, laziness, and lies. Your idolatrous love for comfort and control. Perhaps when I described Israel as God's unfaithful bride, you saw yourself in that description. Well, it can be tempting to come into this room with your head hung low and your spirit even lower. But loved ones... Take comfort in the word of God. For in 1 Kings 18, we see that God does not deal harshly with his unfaithful bride. For even though they have been unfaithful to God, God remains faithful to them. This is what happened on Mount Carmel. And this is what happens every single Lord's Day for us. God calls his sinful people into his presence not to destroy them, but to renew his covenant with them and with us. But as Jonathan Cruz has rightly noted, this is not to say God's faithfulness needs to be renewed like a phone battery needs to be recharged. But as we have done so much that would warrant being rejected permanently by him, for our benefit, he shows to us through the worship service that his faithfulness has never run out. While we are faithless, he always remains faithful. This is what is happening in our worship. God displays his covenantal faithfulness. 
Now, Cruz also notes that Sunday, that the Sunday gathering is also a time for us to renew our commitment to the Lord. But even more fundamental than that, it's a time to revel in God's unfailing commitment to us in his Son. God reveals his unfailing commitment to his people through a five-part covenantal renewal service. These steps were present at Mount Carmel, and I hope you will see that they are present at Oceanside URC every Sunday morning from 10 to noon. We'll go through these very quickly. There's the call, the cleansing, the consecration, communion, and commissioning. Elijah's call to come near is the same call to worship that we hear every Sunday morning. After the call comes the cleansing, but our cleansing happens not through God's holy fire consuming a bull, but through God's holy wrath, which was poured out on his sacrificial son once and for all for us. Every Lord's Day, we are comforted with the words of absolution that we have indeed been cleansed And Christ's person and work is indeed sufficient for every believing sinner. After the call and the cleansing comes the consecration. Israel was consecrated anew when they agreed to Elijah's contest and saw the fire of God fall. Their only response was to fall on their face and declare the Lord, he is God. Well, we are consecrated every Lord's Day by the preaching of the gospel. During the preaching of the gospel, God sets us apart from the world and to himself. While we did not read these verses this evening, the story goes on to describe communion. Elijah says, go up, eat, and drink. And a commission, he says, prepare your chariot and go down. We partake in communion with God through the Lord's Supper. And we are commissioned with his blessing at the close of every service. Mount Carmel is a picture of what happens every single Sunday for us. God calls sinners into his holy presence. But in the new covenant, when God calls us, we do not come to him in our sin. For if we did, God's holy fire would consume more than a bull. But when we come each Lord's Day, we come in the name of Jesus Christ, our mediator. For we aren't in Adam anymore, but we're in Christ. We aren't merely sinners, but we are also saints of God. Every week, we rehearse God's covenantal faithfulness to us in Christ. Well, now I ask How should 1 Kings 18 change the way that you enter through those doors each week? Let me close with Jonathan Cruz's insightful answer. He said, So, run to worship, dear friend. Don't hide in shame or disgrace, thinking your sin is too great for a meeting with God. He knows your sin, and he is ready to cover it with his grace. He knows you have broken covenant, but he is ready to renew it. Experience the wonder of God's never-failing faithfulness every week in worship. And with joy and thanksgiving, lift your voice and respond with the covenant people. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen.
Let us pray. Lord God, we rejoice in your greatness and power, your gentleness and love, your mercy and justice. Enable us by your spirit to honor you in our thoughts and our words and actions and to serve you in every aspect of our lives. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.